0: This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website.
1: Welcome, my name is David Willetts, president of the Resolution Foundation and welcome to our event this morning focusing on intergenerational issues the crucial role of age in society we're holding this event whilst a reshuffle is going on in government and it looks as if the foreign secretary uh, is being replaced by an older person if david cameron takes over and the home secretary being replaced by an older person if james Cleverley replaces her so there's an age backdrop to everything Today, we're bringing out our intergenerational audit, uh, focusing on the divergent prospects between generations. We'll hear first from Sophie Hale, our principal economist, who, alongside Molly Broom, has done a lot of the work for this. It's part of our ESRC-funded Connecting Generations programme here at the Intergenerational Centre Resolution Foundation. And after we've heard from Sophie, we'll then hear from Ndidi O'Casey, who is the Chief Executive of UK Youth. Thanks so much for coming along. Uh, And we're delighted also to be joined by Ben Ansell, Professor Ben Ansell at Nuffield College, Oxford, with whom we have a great partnership on these issues. And also, of course, this year's Wreath Lecturer on Shaping Our Democratic Future. So thank you for coming along as well, Ben. First of all, Sophie, over to you.
2: um okay great um so uh first of all i just want to uh, reiterate my thanks to my co-authors here at resolution foundation particularly molly broom for all of her work on this um, and to our esrc connecting generations partners and um, in particular jane Falkingham for her input on this report and um, the as david says this report looks at what have we seen in terms of sort of intergenerational progress particularly for younger generations um, and the millennials and um, so i'm just going to take us through some of the kind of key findings from the report this morning oh, i'm gonna try there we go um, so um, five years ago we set out our intergenerational commission and we um pointed out that there were these threats to the promise of intergenerational fairness and um, now the issues of kind of intergenerational um, uh, progress and, and, and generational outcomes are in spotlight again, um, but this time it's more in the US where the latest data has suggested that the millennials have started to see, um, the have started to see generational progress again, have um, caught up or even surpassed the generations before them um, on a number of economic measures. Um, and articles such as this one by The Atlantic have sort of come out talking about, um, you know, Do we still need to be worrying about the broke millennial in the U.S.? Um, And so in this report, we thought we would look at, well, have millennials this side of the pond seen the same kind of um, improvement in their economic prospects as they have um, in the U.S.? So when you look at income progress first, what we can see is that in the US, um, there has been significantly more income progress for um, younger generations than there has in the UK. Um, so this zooms in on those in their early 30s to kind of look at um, at this issue. Um, the colors of the bars represent um, the generation that are in their early 30s um, in each year of the data. So the blue is baby boomers, yellow is Gen X, uh, and and the millennials are in purple. And what you see in the UK is that um, incomes have been pretty flat, so there hasn't really been any income progress since um, the financial crisis for uh, millennials. Um, And on the other hand, um, uh, in the US, uh, their incomes are expected to be around 21% higher in 2021 than they were in um, 2007. Um, So they have really seen um, a much better kind of uh, outcome than, than our UK millennials have. And so why? Well, there's two major drivers of, of this difference. Um, the first is that overall income growth has been faster in the US. So um, this you can see both of these sort of drivers on this chart. So the first, if you look at the kind of dash line, that's the average um, income growth for everyone, sort of 20 household income growth um, for those aged 20 to 80. Um, and it's a lot lower in the UK. Um, And, you know, I mean, this is what we would expect. We know that the US economy has been growing a lot more strongly than the UK economy has, especially in recent years, Um, and what that's translated into into faster income growth um, for for everyone sort of economy-wide. But then when you also look at the age profile of income growth, you see that in the UK, millennials have received slightly below average income growth, whereas in the US they've experienced, you know, much faster than average income growth. And so, uh, and, and and on the other hand for the millennials the reverse is true so millennials uh, sorry baby boomers um have experienced above average growth in the uk and, and below average growth um, in the us there's one other kind of major difference in this income story between the uk and the us and that's on the graduates and sort of non-graduate split um which we don't show here um but just to kind of briefly cover it. Um, The story for a long time in the US has been that it's graduates that have kind of carried on pulling away um, and the non-graduates have fallen behind. Um, In recent years, there's been a bit of a phenomenon of much more progressive kind of income and pay progress in the US. And what we actually find is that um, up to to 2021, uh, the income progress for graduates and non-graduates has been, I mean, it's been strong for both of them, for for young grads and non-grads, 15% and 16%. Um, but in the U- in the UK, there is this really big difference. So graduates have seen a nine percent decline in their incomes over this period, versus uh, just a two percent, two percent, yeah, two percent decline for uh, non-graduates, um, which we'll come onto a bit more when we look at pay. Um, So why has this kind of age profile um, that's been unfavourable to the Millennials persisted in the UK? Um, I'm just going to take you through two of the kind of drivers of this. So first, um, yes, it's this issue about pay progress. Pay progress has been really poor um, in the UK. Um, We've talked about the kind of issues that Millennials have had um, in terms of not experiencing pay progress on generations before them um, in a number of our audits. Um, But here we just look at the kind of breakdown between graduates and non-graduates. And what we see is that um, graduates in particular have seen um, very weak uh, pay progress um, relative to the generations before them, so the colors representing the same generations. And you can see that compared to 2007, um, pay is down, uh, pay is like considerably down, 16% down, between two thousand and seven and twenty twenty three, for graduates, um, and just six percent down for non graduates. So there is this really big um, divide between between these two groups. Um, the millennials in the UK are are the are the generation with the highest educational educational attainment Um, and so you would have expected that to kind of deliver them pay progress Um, you would have expected it to reduce the graduate premium so the amount that graduates are receiving over graduates but the fact that there hasn't been any pay progress for this um, for this kind of cohort and this generation is really more indicative of the economy's inability to effectively use its graduates um, and it's sort of lack of productivity growth and and economic stagnation The other reason is policy, Um, so since 2010, there's been a number of um, benefits and tax policy changes, so changes to um, uprating of of benefits, um, changes, you know, freezing tax thresholds um, in recent years, etc., that have all affected um, the expected incomes of of different age groups um, differently, and what we can see here is that for non-pensioners, household incomes are expected to be £2,200 a year worse off as a result of these policies, um, whereas for those of pension age, state pension age and above, um, that av- it, the hit is just two hundred pounds um, a year on average. So there's a really big difference between um, the um, age profile of, of the kind of impacts of these of these policies, um, and particularly for those, you know, millennials that have young children, you can see the the hit to household incomes is is very substantial. Okay, so that's income progress, um, not presenting the best picture um, for the UK millennials so far, but what about home ownership and wealth, which are two other areas that um, we've talked about a lot in our um, intergenerational commission and subsequent intergenerational audits. So home ownership first, what we see is, again, Um, a bit of a less positive story in the UK than the US. In both the UK and the US, we have seen some modest increases in youth home ownership rates in recent years. And you can see this sort of uptick in the last year's data, um, or last couple of um, data points. Um, But unfortunately, In the US, that's done a lot more to close the sort of generational gap in home ownership rates than it has in the UK. And the reason for that is that in the UK, we've had this really steep age divide, um, age divided change in in the profile of home ownership rates. Um, And and that that sort of uh, profile is a lot steeper in the UK than it is in the US. So UK millennials have a lot further to go if they wanna reach the um, home ownership rates of their parents' generation compared to um, US uh, millennials. Um, And one of the reasons for that is, is, you know, policies like right to buy that existed in the UK that did this sort of one off boost to um, particularly baby boomers, home ownership rates. Um, And these are policies that can and and will not be um, replicated for the millennials. Um, and so, what about wealth? Well, I mean, it's not a surprise if we're seeing um, this kind of delayed and, and lower home ownership rates. That we're also seeing um, poor wealth progress, and for younger generations. Um, but just kind of looking at this chart, this shows um, the. What what's happened? The difference between wealth for um, each five year cohort with the cohort that was um, born ten years before them. So, for example, those born in 1981 to 85 um, are, have, have 32,000 pounds less wealth than those born in 1971 to 75 um, when they were at the same age. Um, and so, what you can see, you know, the millennials having these kind of big um, wealth gaps, um, negative wealth gaps, um, and not seeing wealth progress that, that past generations did um so overall what's kind of driving this the, the outcomes um there's three reasons that the UK not UK Millennials haven't seen as much uh generational progress as us first of all we've, we have the stagnant economy and that is limiting um pay and income progression in the UK second the age profile of those gains has been a lot less favorable to the young people in the UK compared to the US um and third in the UK we have some bigger um and so particularly in certain areas like home ownership, much bigger divides um, between generations that kind of pre-existed, so there was a, a lot more catch up to do. Um, and so this kind of gives us, okay, where have UK millennials got to so far um, in particular compared to the US? But, but looking ahead, are there signs that um, UK millennials will do better in the future? So maybe this is really just about young people doing badly in the UK and not millennials per se. As they get older, maybe they will catch up and they'll suddenly experience all the kind of um, positive things that um, the older age groups in the UK are experiencing now. So we'll just take a look at a few indicators of whether that is true. First of all, looking at the generosity of the social security system, um, uh, the sort of welfare state, and this analysis provides a kind of lifetime benefit um, from the welfare state. So, what do you get out of the state in terms of health, education, and um, welfare spending um, relative to, um, compared to, you know, what you put in in taxes each year to kind of pay for that system? And what you see is that. Based on the current like OBR forecast and the current expectations of what we're going to spend, millennials are. So you're looking at the chart on the left-hand side now. They are expected to be the generation that kind of gets the most out of um, uh, out of the welfare state, um, and that's that's great um, for them. Uh, but unfortunately, what this also relies on is you know a really big increase in the tax take as a, as a share of GDP um, to make this affordable, so we estimate that you'd need to increase the tax take by about a third um, to afford this, um, and if you, if you and, that, and this would bring the OECD, the UK to among the highest in the OECD, um, above kind of, you know, Sweden, Finland um, and others, um, based on their kind of current tax takes. If instead you decide, well, that's not really going to be possible and, you know, the tax take that we have at the moment is really some kind of limit on um, what people in the UK are willing to, to to put in in terms of taxes, then what you would have to do instead is cap welfare spending at, say, the levels that it's at um, now or in, in, in the next kind of year or so. Um, so when what we do here on the right hand side is do that we cap it at 25% and we look at well who which generations benefit the most in that case um and as you can see um it uh, it sort of has to um the future generations younger generations um exp- get less kind of net benefit um compared to say the baby boomers um next on home ownership rates what does the prospects look like for home ownership well um this uses a kind of thought experiment. We look at um, if the economic conditions look quite different, you know, what would happen to um, the future home ownership rates for um, these cohorts of millennials, um, the kind of purple lines. Um, and what we see is that um, millennials are gonna be a sort of home ownership generation. So they're gonna be, you know, have more than 50% home ownership um, more than half a decade later than um, the baby boomers. And um, they also are, um, although they might catch up home ownership rates with Gen X, so the the, the yellow um, line, the generation that came immediately before them, they're very unlikely to see the kind of home ownership rates that their uh, parents did. Um, so catch up with the kind of baby boomers. Um, as a, as I mentioned, um, you know there is a number of one-off policies that kind of boosted. the baby boomers' um, home ownership rates, which which were not going to be replicated. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that this this upper bound, the upper sort of line um, on the forecasts or, or on these kind of projections um, are based on extremely favourable economic conditions. So this is the far based on the economic conditions that were present in the fastest decade of home ownership growth in the UK um, between 81 and 91. Um, and that this was a period that was characterised with, you know, loose credit conditions, um, uh, slow growing house price to income ratio and this, this right to buy policy that was, that was boosting home ownership rates. So it's, it's unlikely that, um, you know, we would necessarily get that level of kind of uh, favourable housing conditions present. So finally what about pensions Um, there's a lot of factors that will influence the kind of pensions that um, the the size of pensions that millennials retire with um, uh, but we'll just take you through a couple of those factors and how they're kind of playing into um, pension wealth for millennials and and this is obviously very you know, hugely indicative of the kind of living standards that millennials will have um, into their retirement. And so we forecast what we expect to see in terms of pension wealth um, for these younger cohorts. Um, The first factor that's playing a role is the availability of defined benefit pension um, schemes. Um, They're a lot less available for younger generations um, and they tend to be more generous. And so what we're seeing here is that millennials can expect to retire with considerably less defined benefit pension wealth um, than than older generations, so those born in the 50s and 60s, um, as we can see. On the other hand, we have had policies like auto-enrolment that have increased the number of people and the share of people that are contributing to a defined contribution pension scheme. Um, And so what we see is that younger generations do have more defined contribution pension wealth. So the blue bars are larger for those born in the 90s, for example, than those um, born in the 60s, based on um, on our kind of forward look. Um, but overall, um, you're still seeing this kind of downward-sloping pension wealth. so the increase in defined contribution pensions is not going to outweigh um, the loss of those um, more generous DB pension schemes, unfortunately. The third factor that is important is the interest rate. Um, the future path of the kind of long-term interest rate is very uncertain, uh, particularly at the moment. Um, And so we look at two kind of different scenarios. Um, One, if we, the low rates, we experience the kind of historical recent lows um, in in sort of interest rates that we've had in the last decade or so. Um, versus a scenario where um, the long-term interest rate stays a bit higher, around 3%. um, Higher interest rates, obviously a friend to those who are trying to save um, for their future because it increases the kind of returns they can expect on their pension savings. Um, And so we do see um, younger generations kind of seeing a boost from higher interest rates. um, Those born in the ninety one percent 91 to 95 can expect to retire with an additional 18,000 pounds at the age of 60 um, because of high, you know, in this higher rate environment. Um, On the other hand, you see um, current generations' um, retirement funds being worth a little bit less. This is uh, because DB pensions, the sort of value of them relative to D.C. pensions falls um, when when interest rates are higher. So it does close a bit of the gap, um, a higher rate world, but really still we're seeing that downward sloping trend, so lower pension wealth for younger generations. So to wrap up... um, we haven't seen the kind of, you know, enough intergenerational progress to alleviate our fears that there is um, sort of threat to um, the promise of intergenerational fairness in the UK. Um, both in terms of what we've seen so far, and in terms of when we kind of look ahead, the trajectories that we're expecting, um, we clearly need. Um, we need growth, and you can see our uh, Wealth of Economy 2030 literature on the importance of uh, kick-starting growth for the UK and, um, uh, and how you might go about doing that. Um, but um, it's not enough, as this shows. We also need to make sure that the age distribution of the gains is, is, is more fair and can go towards um, younger generations as well.
1: Great. Thank you very much indeed, Sophie. And that really is a, a, a fresh analysis from... Our intergenerational work we do an annual audit this time we have focused on a comparison with the US um, and it is striking how different the stories are from the in the US and the UK partly just because it's great you've got a growing economy uh, but even so the distributional gains from increases in wealth the distributional gains from increases in pay uh, across generations clearly working very differently in the US and in the, G- in the UK and there is a paradox here because American political leadership is very old indeed. In fact it's so old some of the political leadership is pre-Boomer leadership. Uh, Mitch McConnell, President Biden and it looks as if, uh, although there's a lot of debate in the media about the gerontocracy in the US, it looks as if the gerontocracy in the US is actually delivering a better deal for the younger generation and our relatively younger leadership here in the UK. And one other observation on what you've seen, I mean, the, the effect of high interest rates is indeed partly shown up in valuation of wealth and the valuation of incomes in the future. Um, but it's worth recalling as well that just the flow of interest payments on deposits, on savings, which was down to £5 billion a year when interest rates were low even two years ago before the big surge is now according to Bank of England estimates up to £60 billion a year that is a lot of extra money and a lot of that cash is flowing to older people who tend to have the bank deposits and I can still remember when we were discussing in the government the the triple lock. One of the arguments for the triple lock was interest rates are now so low that pensioners with their savings in the health <coughs> building society account aren't getting any income from it. And this was a key part. This was one of the reasons for the triple lock was to compensate them for that loss in a low interest rate environment. Well, there's now <coughs> a, a dramatic shift in the flow of income from Uh, Savings as a result of higher interest rates again. Now, I should have said earlier, of course, do join in on Slido, which you can access via our website. Put down your questions to the panel, which we will come to in a moment. But first, we've got two fantastic panellists to commentate on all this. First, let's hear from Nadidi Okhazi, who is the CEO of UK Youth and has worked on educational programmes, Uh, delivering services and advice for young people. So, Nididi, your views on all this.
3: Okay, do you want me to go up there? Yeah,
1: it's up to you, yeah, do.
3: (coughs) (laughs) Hi, everyone. No idea who I'm speaking to, so hi. Um, Whoever else is out there, hi to all of you that are in the room. Um, Thank you so much for having me um, join this. It's such a fascinating conversation and quite sobering, obviously, in lots of ways. Um, unfortunately, I can't really speak very much to the US context in terms of um, youth, but hopefully the insights that we have at UK youth can add to the discussion. There's, quite, there's something that you said, Sophie, that's really stood out for me, and that's the line where you said maybe they will catch up. And that, for some reason, that's going to stay with me, because I think there's something um, both hopeful but quite, um, again, equally sobering, I think, just about that ambition. Um, I, I'll just jump in a bit and think about our our perspective as um, UK youth. UK youth is a, an organi- a network organisation. Um, we work with youth organisations, right, from a grassroots to local to regional to national level, including our um, nation partners, so really have a kind of a UK breadth. There's about 10,000 youth organisations in England alone. Um, and collectively, you know, we work with organisations that reach around 4 million young people. Um, so um, quite a wide breadth and for lots of people, actually, we find that they don't really understand what youth work is. So I think the way to just frame what I'm saying is think about where young people go when they're not at school and they're not at home. And our view is that young people should have somewhere to go. There should be a safe place that they can go where they can do positive activities with a trusted adult that isn't necessarily their parent, carer or teacher. So that's the, the kind of mission that we have at UK Youth. Um, It's a really interesting opportunity to delve deeper into the economic challenges faced by younger generations in the UK. Um, I've I've framed my reflections drawing on the insights from the report, Resolution Foundation's report, as well as our own insights across our network at UK Youth. Obviously, the stark reality painted by the data is concerning. Millennials, as the report illustrates, carry permanent scars in their economic um, landscape lagging incomes, diminished home ownership rates, and slower wealth accumulation, showcase really a generation that struggles against the headwinds of what we know to be soaring housing costs, inflated asset prices, and stagnant wages that actually go back decades now. The data points that we've also gleaned actually sadly further underscore the gravity of the situation. A staggering 30% of young people themselves say that they feel they may never achieve their career aspirations. We've known that over 200,000 believe they will never work. Currently, more than one in 10 young people are what is deemed as neat, not in education, employment or training. Um, and this rate sur- surged into 50 percent higher among those from the poorest backgrounds. This places the UK, I believe, second from last among OECD countries in terms of the gap between youth and adult employment levels. The economic cost of youth unemployment is almost 7 billion annually with severe personal impacts on young people's self-esteem, which is something I I do think it's worth us talking about, financial security, physical and mental health. However, this is always the bit that I like to focus on, there is hope. We um, issued a report with um, Frontier Economics back in 2021. Um, The report came out in 22, it's called Untapped. Please have a look. Um, Our mission there was to try and find the most razor cuts, visceral economic think tank that could be, you know, basically the the most opposite in terms of our kind of moral conviction around youth work. And we really just wanted to understand, is there economic value to this thing that we're all passionate about? And we found, yes, indeed. we found that the um, the report demonstrates that youth work intervention save the taxpayer almost one billion per year by preventing young people from falling into that neat it speaks about the intervention that youth work or the difference youth work makes um, in terms of savings for education um, criminal justice um, health these are um, upstream interventions that actually save the economy um, or taxpayer money in the long run and yet it is still an intervention that we have to struggle to make the case for it's an intervention that we still have to see as having very disparate provision um, depending on where you live as a young person we fundamentally not just believe but now we have the economic data to back it up that youth work is a vital tool it plays a pivotal role in shaping the future for young people the challenge however remains significant as I said four million young people currently access youth work that leaves 10 million young people who do not access quality youth work. This is most prevalent in deprived areas where support is most scarce. This stark inequality of access demands coordinated efforts across sectors and a reimagination of what sustainable funding looks like for youth work. Our theory of change at UK Youth is that we fundamentally believe that none of this is going to change. It's not going to happen by accident if we leave things as they are, we need to, We need a far more strategically aligned cross-sector effort that is bringing public, private and voluntary sectors together in terms of the strategic work that is done um, around provision for young people. We believe that there needs to be a far less siloed approach to tackling the both the economic but also the educational, physical and mental health path for young people. We believe that a a much more collaborative model will drive the necessary change. If we can learn from effective practice, we need to identify what is working, what are the interventions that work. So if there are examples of things that are happening in the US that the UK is not doing, most people don't know about it, and isn't that a travesty? How do we identify what is working against each of these different pillars, whatever the um, lens we're looking at is? My question is, do we know what works? Do we know what is making a difference? How do we then take what is making a difference and put it into the hands of more practitioners? How do we put it in the hands of people who are doing this work every day with young people, making decisions about young people? How do we turn evidence into action? How do we then spread that impact, collectively advocating for um, better joined up quality youth services, and see progress become much more tangible. It is absolutely crucial that government plays a part. It needs to make long-term investments to provide the next generation with the platform they need to thrive. But it's not just government. We need to see business thinking about their role in this in a far more proactive way. We need to see organizations like the Resolution Foundation, other trusts and foundations, other think tanks, seeing their role as You know taking a report like this which is absolutely insightful transformative but what happens after this report how do we make sure that the insights get into the hands of the people that need it and actual change can happen i don't think that we can we clearly can see that we can no longer afford to hope that things get better on their own the resolution foundation's report reinforces the urgency that is needed the urgency for concerted effort Without it, the prospects for Britain's youth do remain bleak, yet, yet, yet the potential for change is there and it lies in the strategic alignment of expertise across various sectors, coupled with meaningful engagement with the energy and talents of young people themselves. I think coming out of COVID and the pandemic, we've seen um, actually a lot of silver linings, a lot of things happened during the pandemic that we would have never imagined could happen. We we rethought systems, we rethought institutions, we rethought ways of doing things. And actually in lots of ways, we're seeing um, a decline back to the the kind of traditional ways, the traditional silos. And so I guess my um, provocation for us all is to not allow that to happen, is to take something like this and think, okay, Who are the people that we usually speak to about reports like this? How do we expand that that bubble? How do we get into the hands and into the faces and into the um, environments of different people who work with young people who make decisions that would, this would make a difference to? The more we can be in spaces where there are other sectors in the same spaces, I believe that's the way we know that real change is going to happen. And it's something that we hear from young people a lot. Young people need to be part of these conversations. We need to move away from a done to where we are talking about young people in a really abstract and disconnected way they need to be involved they need to be in this room they need to be listening online and we need to hear their voices and their experiences I really believe that with the quality of the work that um, organisations like the Resolution Foundation um, do that we really do have the potential to turn these things around not because uh, it's just an interesting an exercise in data and research but because there are real lives that are behind these stats there are real futures that are behind these stats and we have a responsibility I believe to ensure that we do everything that we can to make sure that this story turns around. Thank you.
1: Great, thank you very much indeed indeedy. and and uh, that is a fair challenge and we're always aware of that here at Resolution Foundation. Uh, we are a think tank uh, but we also try in, in lots of ways, um, including uh, uh, reaching out widely, both to draw on lived experience and to try to influence policy and practice mm. so as to implement the uh, proposals that follow from our analysis. And thank you, too, for your optimism. You're absolutely <laughs> right. We must never be pessimistic about all this. Now we're going to hear from Professor Ben Ansell. Thank you so much for sparing the time. He's much in demand as this year's Nobel uh, 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 Nobel, Wreath Lecturer, <laughs> uh, on his way to the Nobel Prize, but this year it's a Wreath Lectures, and also, of course, has written about equalities and democracy, and there's an issue about whether generational inequalities play into uh, the functioning of democracy. Anyway, Ben, over
0: to you. Thank, Thank you, David. Yeah, and that's the type of work I'm going to be talking about. Um, I will try not to be Too much of a downer. After indeed, his impassioned, important (laughs) talk. Uh, But I am a political scientist, Um, and and politics is tough, right? And one of the difficult issues about politics in this country is um, that over the past two or three election cycles we've seen a hardening of an age divide that uh, at least since the war is unprecedented i don't know what age divides were like in the 19th century we don't have the data um but in and i'm afraid i apologize for saying their name in my report for the institute for fiscal studies um a rival (laughs) and, and fund um jane gingrich and i looked at the british election study going back to the 60s and looked at the determinants of both vote choice and turnout over that time. And what we found is that in the last couple of elections, age has just been substantially more important, both in terms of who you vote for and whether you vote. So in terms of who, if you take a decade gap between, say, a 40-year-old and a 50-year-old, that's associated in the last few elections with being about 7% more likely to vote Conservative up through the 90s, maybe even the early 2000s, that's associated with about a 3% gap, right? So that gap has more than doubled, added to which the turnout gap has also increased. In fact, that's increased even more. So uh, that same decade age gap in the 80s and 90s was associated with a 2% difference in whether you turned out to vote. That's now a 6% difference. Okay, so there's been a real hardening of age divides, who you vote for and whether you vote, now whether that's been caused by youth um, disaffection with politics because of course we have seen and the resolution foundation have been central to us understanding that policy environment in the uk has pivoted towards older people right so it could be that young people feel disaffected or it could be that disaffected young people who don't turn out to vote don't get the kinds of policies they want and it's very hard to separate these two things what i will say is that in america and i don't I mean, I think this, um, this document is fascinating because I have not seen um, a similar analysis of the UK and US paths with regard to this. But one thing worth noting is that the US turnout gap in age has actually declined since the, since the 2008 election, basically, right? So Barack Obama may not have achieved all he set out to achieve in lots of ways, but one thing he did effectively achieve was actually a, a reduction of the age gap in voting. With that said, the age gap in who you vote for in America is still enormous. Right? But, but that's a kind of partisan question. I think the timeout question is important for all of us across parties. Um, the other thing that, that you may be aware of, particularly if, if you've been reading John Byrne Murdoch's wonderful pieces, or if you um, are foolish enough to subscribe to my Substack and have seen some of my pieces on this, is that there's been a gap at the generation level in vote choice in the UK that's quite profound. So people did in fact used to vote Conservative more as they got older. Not dramatically so, but yes. But that never happened for Gen Xers never happened for people who are sort of 45 to 50 or younger. They just remain sort of a little bit more labor. And millennials, as they have aged, have not gone closer to the conservatives. They veered sharply away. And older people have veered sharply towards conservatives. So you have a kind of funnel outwards effect. Not funneling in, but funneling out. As the old have pivoted very strongly to conservatives, the young have pivoted very, very strongly to labor. I think that is in part responsible for or a cause of, or a consequence of, who knows, the polarisation in this country, particularly over cultural matters, because that's where the young and old really disagree, uh, including on their preference for avocado toast, which I'm so glad we saw here. We can't have, can't have a conversation about age without avocado yeah. toast. One thing that you may not be aware of is that that sort of outward-funnel effect is much stronger among non-graduates than it is among graduates, and that's because graduates everywhere have gone left over the last couple of elections, including among older generations. In fact, among every group, generationally, they were all slightly more likely to vote for Labor in the 2019 election. The problem for Jeremy Corbyn is there aren't that many graduates over the age of 65. So some of this is compositional. Uh, But the real kind of culture war is actually between non-graduates, which I think is surprising and and maybe counterintuitive, given given the way we talk about this. Mismatch, you talk about in this document. And I I wrote, again with Jane Gingrich, a paper on mismatch a few years back, where we did a similar exercise to you guys looking at, our graduates in typically graduate jobs? And we were interested in the political consequences of that. And we look across Europe in this case. And actually, the UK, you can can see a little with with your data here, UK is sort of in the middle in the mismatch terms. Um, so while London has relatively few mismatched jobs, the rest of the UK has lots, but guess what? So do places like Spain or Austria and so on. What we learn about mismatched graduates, that is people with a university degree but not in a university job, those people are much less satisfied with their life than graduates. In fact, they look a lot like non-graduates, that's not to say that the world is terrible for non-graduates, but it is to say that if you get a degree and you don't get a degree level job, your life satisfaction looks like people without degrees. You are also, although it's not quite as stark in these cases, less trustful of politicians, less happy with the state of democracy, and more likely to vote for the radical right than a graduate in a graduate level job. So if we think about some of the underlying dynamics in people's desire to vote for populist right parties and the story of uh, increased higher education participation, but not necessarily increased higher education jobs, I think this helps explain the attraction of Vox, the attraction of Chega, the attraction of uh, whatever they're called today, the Rassemblement National, I guess, uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, the Five Star Movement, Fratelli, and so on. And you know potentially in this country, where, of course, you have a two-party system, so it's harder to see, in support for UK reform, or the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson, depending on <laughs> one's views. OK, uh, two quick other things I wanted to talk about with my own data. I ran a few surveys, thanks to the European Research Council uh, in 21 and 22 surveying, well, in total, uh, almost 10,000 people um, with YouGov. We asked um, a bunch of questions. I'll just refer to a few here. We asked one about fairness. So um, this question was basically, do you think your chances in life are caused by things outside your control uh, or uh, in your own hands? And what we found is that 60% of 20-somethings think success is outside of their control. That's only 35% of um, over 70s. Uh, And I actually should say, only 35% of over 70s who are graduates think that. The rest of them think it's in your own hands. Only 25% of over 70 non-graduates think that. So they're the group who actually think life has been fairest. In the UK, the group who think life is least fair, or rather that their own individual effort matters least, are young graduates. And it may well be because they're mismatched. We asked people also to write an open-ended response sort of explaining their views. Over 50s, the kinds of words that are typically associated with being over 50 and not with being under 50 are work, achieve, hard, prepare, effort, and the wonderful word plate, which I assume is from handed everything on a plate (laughs) in that particular line. Under 50s use words about society more, wealthy, poverty, status, connection. And I think that gives a sense of, for young people in the country, these core individual liberal, or maybe small c conservative principles of individualism, hard work, doing it on your own, are not popular. Maybe they're not popular for good reason, because in particular, there's this huge gap that we got to at the end here on housing. Um, There are just huge generational differences. If you ask people, who do you think had it better? Actually, everybody agrees, yeah, the boomers and the silent generation had it better, and it's terrible for millennials. But what is really surprising, and I think concerning, particularly if you're a new government coming in and wanting to build houses, is that age gap does not hold up so strongly it's there but in a much more muted way in terms of support for building new houses there's still a lot of nervousness about the construction of new houses in this country even among young people and even among renters it is extremely hard to find a group of people for whom more than 50 percent support building new houses so (laughs) that's a rather depressing note to leave you on Um, so let me flip this the other way and say even without that high level of support it is also the case that millennial homeowners are much more supportive of building new houses than older homeowners are. Right? So you're not going to have this kind of blocking NIMBY group um, move down the generations. So I think there is more support among young homeowners for doing something. In fact, the gap between young homeowners and renters barely exists uh, in that. The final thing I just wanted to say And speaking to your point um, about the age at which people first start owning houses is I think it's worth reminding ourselves and I don't know whether this went into your um, predicted home ownership rates that of course younger people today if they're more likely to go to university are almost certainly more likely to want to own a house later because they finish education later, and then they move to their first job later. So to the degree that we see a kind of gap with them, millennials catching up later, I would suggest that's probably related to the different patterns of university education. And that might not be something to worry about, it's if they never catch up, it's something to worry about. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Yeah, lots of interesting points there. The uh, We
1: have done some work on young people and participation, by the way, voting. And, because uh, you're again, one of the caricatures you sometimes hear of younger people from older people, where so they don't even bother to vote. Uh, the evidence was that the big rise in young people living in the private rented sector, which in turn tends to be associated because you're moving around more, um, with lo- lower likelihood of registering to vote, because it is just harder to register to vote if you're moving around private. That seemed to explain a lot of the decline in in voting by younger people. If they're in social housing our owner occupiers, they're as likely to vote as any other group. So there may have been an environmental factor. Um, I'm going to start with the, the the questions that have come in online, tie in actually with something that's relevant, but um, particularly I'm going to turn to you first, Nidhi, for UK youth, because it's about family and inheritance. So one question is... Um, homes that are occupied by older people aren't going to disappear they're still around so surely inheritance means eventually we'll get back to very high levels of home ownership amongst currently young people so kind of we'll get there in the end won't we um and then an argument what about the importance of wealth transfers for from parents and grandparents does that make that source of income more important relative to employment earnings and a strong theme in a lot of our work has been that paradoxically, modern Britain, in modern Britain, which many people thought the family would kind of become less and less significant, in modern Britain the family has become more significant. And for many young people, their main contact with the older generation is via the family, whereas contacts in other forms between the generations have eroded. And I guess part of what you're trying to do at UK Youth is promote other forms of intergenerational link that don't depend on family members. But meanwhile, economically, you're fighting against an economic trend where parents are so much more economically significant, and people don't want to row with their banker. They don't want to, they keep up, the parents matter. How do you make other adults matter for younger people?
3: Mm, I love that. Really interesting. I, I think the thing that just strikes me as you're talking is that that it's just the wide disparity of the types of young people we're talking about. And so there's much of the first initial reflections that you shared there that just wouldn't be relevant for majority of the young people that um, we we see kind of utilising um, um, our services. And I think that that is important for us to recognise and to acknowledge that you know that, 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 there's, that in making sure that our data speaks to all of the kind of the different um, demographics of young people. But I, I love the, the, the where it kind of landed because I think we are finding that, that question of, you know, who is a trusted adult in a young person's life that is not their parent or is not their teacher. Now, we all expect and understand that every person should have a teacher as a trusted adult. And we, we know that even the problems with that, we know coming out of COVID, I think the last figure is over 100,000 young people who are still missing from school. Have not returned to school, so that idea of kind of having a trusted adult as a teacher, we know even not all young people can count for that. But when it comes to a parent or carer, we just know that that's not the case, unfortunately, for so many young people. They do not have that kind of, um, um, you know, stable adult um, figure influence in their life coming from home. So when you talk about housing and you know generational transfers and all those things, it's just not, it's just not a reality. So the question is. What role can another adult play? And it might be about um, being informed. It might be more about, you know, we we hear, one of the biggest requests we hear from young people is the desire for more financial literacy, you know, for more understanding of of all of these topics that we talk about. Think about how and where you learned about these things. For so many young people, if those staples are not there, where are they expected to understand where they're making decisions, how they're making decisions. And so I think the, the, the push coming from us more than anything is that these, I love, you know, your point about the kind of individualistic view of our society, we can no longer afford to live that mindset is my personal view. Yeah. I think we have to recognize that, that there isn't an equity of kind of distribution for all young people. And so how do we more collectively as a society make sure that there are strong nets for all young people that can catch them, even if those individual pillars are not present.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much. And now, Ben, you might want to comment on that, but also there's a couple more questions come in online mm-hmm. that tie in very much with what you were talking about. Um, what are the effects of these winding generational gaps on intergenerational social cohesion mm-hmm. and young people's political mm-hmm. opinions? And another question which you must get with your focus on inequality a lot, and we get a lot here, is Uh, Okay, Uh, this intergenerational work is obviously focused on age, but what about other gaps, and do they matter more, such as income and class? Mm -hmm. Um, And you must be endlessly and you focused as we have on the rise in voting behaviour of age as an issue Mm -hmm. compared with class. But does that have wider significance? Any observations about that as well?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Let me just begin by responding to Ndidi's point, which is that I do think that the language that young people use when when we ask them to, when we ask all of our survey respondents to write a paragraph explaining why they gave us the answer that they did, is is much more... um, structural mm-hmm. in nature than that among old people i and i don't know if that's an educational thing i don't know if it's an age thing or if i don't know if, if it's a lived experience thing mm-hmm. but i think it's something for politicians to be thinking about the, the 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 sort of explanations that people find convincing have changed now to david's point about well firstly that that latter question um which i i can see the question is is quite broadly well maybe generations matter now but in the long run it's income or class and i think traditionally i i would have I would have believed that. Um, I do think it's hard to pull these things apart at any given moment. But what I will say is that in the UK, income in the last two elections had almost zero impact on voting at the individual level and at the cross constituency level. I mean, it's astonishing. It's like you throw scatter points on a graph and it's just a blob. Uh, but what mattered instead was education and education is so in highly correlated with age and I think that in turn it was an output of, of Brexit-based polarization which is so tied to age and is so tied to education in this country. And so what it did was, if you like traditionally, uh, the, the stat I always use is that in the 100 constituencies with the cheapest houses in Britain, Labour won every single one of them in 1997. And the Tories basically won half of them in 2019. So that old pattern where income going up made you more conservative has crossed over with a pattern from Brexit where places with high house prices voted to remain, the opposite direction, and the two things have netted each other out. And we've had this moment in politics where the old factors like income and cost just stopped mattering. I can't see that really lasting. I think we're going to end up in one place or another, but I think it explains why our politics is so complex today because no one really knows how to handle a politics that breaks away from the classic two-party class politics that we've had. We've had here um,
1: Ben Page at King's, uh, who has written about, as you know, attitudinal gaps. And although there are some culture war issues, His argument is overall, if you look at this kind of big questions of tolerance, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you find that the big cultural gap is between boomers and their parents. The liberalisation of the 1960s -hmm. led to a step change in attitudes and there hasn't, he would say, and I find him very persuasive on this, been anything similar. So the way I tend to summarise the evidence is the the cultural gap is between boomers and their parents, and the economic gap is between boomers and their kids. Yeah. So I tend to think of this age thing as actually behind it. There's quite a lot of economics things like mm-hmm. wealth ownership. But to what extent do you would you challenge
0: that kind of analysis, or is no? I think I think that's broadly right. So in terms of fairness views, and you know how how. How much control do you as an individual have? Huge gaps related to experiences in the economy. If you ask people what do you want government to do, you find much, much smaller gaps. And I think that's important both for people on the left to understand that there is not some huge tidal wave wanting massive levels of redistribution. Yeah. Um, and it's you know, equivalently important for people on the right to understand there's actually quite a high level of support for redistribution among old people as well. In terms of cultural norms, I mean, I think if you look at the British social attitudes survey, you can't help but be struck at just the general liberalization in, in Britain. And so it is odd that we're having a culture war, uh, given that actually on the whole, the country's become a lot more liberal on these issues. The only possible answer I might have for that is one of the things about being socially authoritarian in the past is, you didn't talk about things like this. <laughs> so now maybe we're all talking about things like this as we've become more liberal.
1: That's very interesting. And look, I have to say, this matters. It matters for lots of reasons. And one reason it matters, is I do say to my friends in the Conservative Party, the Conservative government, look, don't give up on young people. They are not a bunch of Marxists. They actually, many of their aspirations are ones that a Conservative would recognize. They want to own their own home, they want a decent job. And actually they are quite skeptical about the power of government. They are indeed even, even more tolerant than the generations before them, but um, they are worth conservatives trying to appeal to is an argument I like to deploy, and I would, um, and I hope it has some effect. Now, and I know you've got to go off in a moment, Ben, and we've got a, a lot of... Um, I'm going to put up a polling, mm. one poll question and so. invite people to give their views about what uh, younger cohorts should be most worried about um, and I'm going to invite the panelists to comment on this and we we'll give the poll result so this is so we've got these different issues which we've analyzed here at resolution at great length um, if you're again a policy maker thinking on how you could best help young people what are the biggest issues there is it home ownership is it pay is it savings for pensions is it just where great growing public services go I'm going to start with you because I know you've got to go and then we'll move around the panel well, how would you
0: rank those four? So I think the second, lack of pay progress, would unlock the other three to some degree. And and I think the most striking uh thing that we saw in Sophie's presentation was that my generation of people in their mid forties, our incomes were pretty good when we hit thirty and it's just flatlined for everybody else since. But the cost of housing, the cost of childcare um, cost of living issues more broadly have gone up for everybody so they have been squeezed and it's been a particular generation if they were to have the experience that Millennials are currently harrowing it might unlock all of these other parts because without the pay you're not going to save enough for your pensions you won't be able to afford a house and indeed you might react to being asked to pay more for taxes for these public services.
1: Very interesting and all of our online participants um, do feel that you, now your opportunity to vote. You may be influenced by that argument, yeah. but indeed, you are in close contact. Your organising code is in contact with with so many young people. What do you think would be their ranking of those four preoccupations?
3: Well, I kind of have the same um, um, model argument in terms of what unlocks the others, but mine would be on the last one. And that's, I, I guess, putting public, put, public services is quite a broad term in the argument I'm making. But the majority of young people are never gonna face those problems yeah. unless we get that the public services sorted. And so for me, the public services rep- um, represents that net. Um, you know, we see a huge issue in terms of barriers to employment. Mm-hmm. So before I can even worry about whether I've got pay progress, do I have a job? Can I, can I be in a job? Do I understand how to secure a good job? And then all of those things, of course those things are important, but we have millions, millions of young people who are never even going to engage with the first three unless we make sure to Society that we have a stronger net around them.
1: Thanks. and Now, Sophie, of course, with your authoritative analysis <laughs> of these, what would your observations be? Uh,
2: I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I think the the core argument about pay progress, kind of unlocking a lot of these, is is pretty um, uh, pretty convincing. Um, I guess just. I don't think it is um, low ownership that is the biggest concern, but just to unpick some of the stuff that we haven't really talked about on on home ownership rates, there's a really big difference in the amount, you know, the share of your income that you spend on housing costs if you're in the private rented sector compared to if you're, if you're a homeowner. And even with interest rates going up and, and mortgages kind of feeling the pain of that, they are still spending considerably less of their income On their housing costs than you do if you're in the private rented sector so there is this big problem about just how expensive the private rented sector is for young people who are who are kind of stuck there because of this delayed home ownership their inability to then save and to accumulate wealth Mm -hmm. for later in life as a result because they're just spending Mm -hmm. so much on housing Um, and and the other thing is the quality of the private rented sector and the protections that they have and the insecurity that they have so you know it's not just the 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 cost side there's this these um, you know really substantial concerns that they they'll just be kind of thrown out and and as you said stuff like whether it has associations with whether they're going to vote and, and various other things that are part of you know their connection to kind of um, society as well.
1: I think Sophie you are the authentic voice of young people and <laughs> um, I think there is indeed and it's a, and one actually which makes this a cross-class issue and where age is is displacing class is there are even quite an affluent parent so we're hearing the stories of the of the private rented accommodation their kids are in, do uh, worry about their inability to get onto the home ownership ladder. Now let's see the results. Well, what do our how have our online participants voted in this poll? Uh, they have oh. they have followed the eloquent advice from Ben and gone heavily for pay, which of course has pay is one of our preoccupations. here. Fine by us. Um, public services, second. Home ownership, third. Of course, this is what they should be most worried about. Who am I to say? I personally think if you asked what they are most worried about, you may find it is home ownership. But they are all there, uh, and, uh, but with pay out on top. Um, I'm just going very briefly because we, we're getting to an end. I'm just going to check. On our QA and A that we have um, had, got the key angles. I think I'm going to pick one last question out to be topical. It's always um, it's a hot topic at the moment, and this is um, well, what we should do with the triple lock, and uh, uh, and of course, if it, is it going to be in existence for the younger generation uh do you have any view on that dd
3: i mean (laughs) um i think it's an an interesting whether it's whether anything is going to happen due to the kind of political issues around it i think is a is a different question personally i do think it needs to be reviewed i think that is that's the right thing to do but whether there's political will to make that shift I, I don't believe so. So I don't think anything's actually going to happen.
1: Ah right. That's my view. <laughs> cynical maybe. There's <laughs> there's my cynical
3: moment. Right. So
1: <laughs> this is an opportunity just to bring out the our latest figures. I think there's a new estimates in the report out today on the distribution of benefits between generations.
2: Yeah. So I mean, we did touch on it. The the policies since 2010 have have kind of favoured. Um, those below pension, um, above pension age, um, with them seeing kind of uh, yeah, much much smaller income hits from from the range of policies that have been implemented. I mean, I think the interesting way to think about the triple log was that it was trying to address a problem which was that um, incomes of people above pension age were you know were very low. And in in the report, it's not a chart that we showed in this presentation, but we we look at um, you know what what do incomes for those above pension age look like for the 20, you know, for the um, poorest deciles of of pensioners versus um, the poorest decile of um, uh, non-pensioners. And to look at, you know, the past was, those pensioners were a lot worse off than than people who have working age, um, you know, as you would expect. But in recent years, that has, you know, Reversed. So the poorest pensioners are, um, have a much more comfortable standard of life than um, the poorest people of, of working age, and that is because of this. this Um, really kind of unequal um, set of policies on how you uplift um, working age benefits versus uh, the the triple lock which has been put in place. So, you know, the triple lock was trying to achieve something that is to make sure that there wasn't this kind of pensioner destitution. It's probably achieved that um, in terms of making sure that pensioner incomes don't fall relative to working age incomes again. I mean, that's why you choose um, an uplifting, rule um, for pensions for the state pension and that keeps them in lock with with working age incomes but you know there's there's no obvious reason to me why you have this sort of um very unequal treatment of working age versus Mm. pension incomes.
1: and i think this time in our report we show it is not just the poorest pensioners whose incomes after housing costs have overtaken the poorest families Mm. or just in the middle but even at the high end Pensioners, yep. after housing costs, are enjoying higher incomes.
2: Yeah, that's right, um, and, and in large part because of, as you as you mentioned, um, that big boost in, in income um, from savings that pensioners have, because they have uh, big big savings.
1: Right, any part, I should have given an opportunity for our uh, distinguished uh, group who've actually come here physically. If anybody okay. has a question, yes, we'll ask one one question, and then we must wind up. Yeah. I, I, think what Peter Hurs, I think one of the main um, challenges for young people is perceived life chances. And uh, uh, this is b- that was beyond outside your range of questions. And, uh, you know, if you don't feel you've got a chance in life, whatever that might mean, then you, you sort of hope, you know, that's something you've really got to concentrate. Hope is so important, particularly with things like climate change coming along. People um, it's the responsibility of government to provide lifetime you know a life expecting to get something out of their lives right well this that's a that's a very good challenge on which to end and you covered this earlier but you want to come back to it and particularly how this ties in with social mobility and people believing they've got an opportunity to shape their lives indeed
3: yeah i couldn't um, peter is it I, I couldn't i couldn't agree with you more i think there is a real um gap of hope at the moment in a lot of areas and i think one of the things that i'm often really cognizant of is how we as adults talk about the prospective futures of young people Um, and it's very often especially you know in our field we're advocating and championing for more um you know investment for you know government to do xyz for different businesses so in a lot of those spaces we paint the most starkest of pictures and i've often had young people you know engage and say like, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> like, like, you know, that feels really heavy in terms of what you're describing. And so I think with all of these things, I think we do have a responsibility to weave hope into um, this, not not um, fake, you know, not kind of insincere, but really understanding with all of these, like, what, what would it look like if um, things were different? What do we have to do to turn this around? And there is always something to do. It's just whether we have the political and societal will to do it. Um, so I do think, that part of what enables social mobility or enables people to believe that they can um, do X, Y or Z is, is that, that fire in your belly, as it were, that gives you that sense of um, um, imagining that things can be different to what you see today. And I guess my, my closing reflection is just what I said earlier, which is I think we all have a collective responsibility to play a role in that. And so whether you know you don't have to have young people, you know, children to think about young people in a, in a very intentional way, and I guess that would be the challenge. How are we all thinking about young people? How are we thinking about the provision in our local areas, in our communities, and then beyond? This is going to be addressed with a collective societal um,
1: effort, and I think it's possible. Thank you very much. Sophie, your final comments on that, and more widely?
2: Um, I mean, yeah, so something that we that we do talk about and that Ben talked about is this, this kind of maybe mismatch, this inability to get graduates into kind of the jobs that um, maybe they might want to be in or like might have expected to be in um, and um, i think we do really need to think about you know how do we like kickstart the economy again how do we make sure that there's jobs for graduates outside of london again which um, uh, ben talked about um, so that you know wherever you're kind of born and whichever part of the country you're in you have got those kind of opportunities um, uh, to like have a have a better standard of life as a as a younger graduate in the uk
1: yeah and and i would say actually there are some optimistic messages as well from our report out today. I mean, first of all, that America, which on many measures of equality and inequality scores particularly badly, America, despite all those challenges it faces, does appear to have been able to manage a system which in terms of a fair deal in access to public services, how um, assets are distributed, where pay increases go does look to be delivering a significantly better deal for younger generation than we are. So, this is not asking for something impossible. Now, it is massively helped by America's um, improved economic performance with living standards still rising in the US and where they aren't here. But, nevertheless, this is, it's doable in a country with which we often look at saying it's less fair and less equal than we are. And also, even when you just look at the British trends, we don't know how far this is going to go, but it does look as if some of the trends are reversing. It does look as if home ownership amongst young young people is past its low point. Interesting debate about how much it can recover. But it does look as if home ownership amongst young people is now uh, increasing. Um, And that even modest improvements in pay reaching younger workers so although it's still the case that if you're age 30 now you're earning less in absolute real terms than you would have done 10 years ago or more again it looks as if pay is beginning to pick up Mm -hmm. so I think we shouldn't the challenge is we shouldn't end on too bleak a note this is not impossible Mm -hmm. different policies different approach to economic management will have different effects and there are some green shoots even if we look at the way in which economics is affecting the younger generation today mm. thank you very much to our panelists ben and adidi thank you to sophie for uh, leading resolutions work on this really important subject thank you all very much for joining us today thanks
0: thank you for listening to this resolution foundation event you can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the resolution foundation website